There is a trigger warning for this episode as it contains discussions of mental health, PTSD, suicide ideology, and it may be triggering to some. If you're struggling with mental health, please seek professional medical advice. One of the offenders was sitting on the windowsill of the passenger's door with a rifle on the roof, a two two three automatically rifle and a semi-automatic rifle on the roof, shooting us at us as we were chasing them. And they, um, the vehicle in front of me, the uniform car with a male and female in it, had twenty four rounds bullets in that vehicle when the pursuit, when the job finished, and they they'd fired dozens more rounds than that. Today's guest is a self-described human behaviour, high performance and resilience consultant, keynote speaker and author. After joining the Queensland Police in 89, today's guest worked in the dog squad as well as the covert and surveillance unit working on major and organised crime. Leaving Queensland Police and diagnosed with PTSD, he spent the next 17 years immersed in studying personal development, human behaviour and high performance all with the goal of healing himself and living a healthy life. He now devotes his life to helping others, using his learned knowledge and education, mentoring and coaching through his business, The Strong Life Project. His most recent book, My Dark Companion, chronicles his highly personal fight with PTSD and depression, coming out the other side as a role model for people of all walks of life on how to create a life that you love. Episode 95, Sean O'Gorman. Welcome to One Moment Please, the podcast where our guests take a moment to tell their stories of how they've overcome adversity to achieve success, and you take a moment to tune in, so bring on the inspiration. Kept tabs on that puppy on Instagram. It's one of the things I was disappointed about not doing this face-to-face is that I didn't get to see the puppy. <laughs> I, uh, I said to someone, I went to the vets today to get her 12-week shots, and I said to a mate of on the other day, I said, once she gets to six months, I'm going to give it to a shelter and get another puppy. I haven't had this much attention from women for all my life. It's amazing. <laughs> so I should do it more often. Well, Unfortunately, they don't a... talk to me much, Sophie. They're, uh, they go, oh, she's beautiful. Can I pat her? And I go, yep, that's it. Then I just stand and hold the lead and they talk to her and then pretty much leave me alone. So, <laughs> well, you decided so to good. get a fur missile too. So it may not happen when she's bigger. Yeah, she's, yeah, she's, so I've got, you probably can't see, but I've got bites and, I look like I've got leprosy. She's, she's just feisty. Like, she's nip and bite me, and yeah, she's super feisty. Yeah, she's all, she's such a good pup. Her dad's um an SAS dog, so oh, okay. a current serving regiment dog. So yeah, her Full her on. line. She's got brilliant breeding lines. Mm. So and she's just so. We drove yesterday for eleven hours straight, pretty much. I think I stopped twice for like ten minutes from Goulburn to Brisbane, and she didn't make a sound. She's so balanced. As well, so she doesn't win. She's so resilient, amazing pup. Why did you get her? Did you want to first self like a self defense thing or? Uh no, not really. So because of my dog squad background, obviously I loved having the like working dog. And I had another German Shepherd when I left the police, um, and so I got I ha- I took one with me when I left, which was a development dog that um, the guy took my work my dog that was already trained because he was only five so they wouldn't give him to me when I left I took this other dog he died of cancer then I got a pup German Shepherd pup but it was only 18 months old my daughter was born and my the girl's mum ex-wife freaked out about what if the dog he came inside the house one day and picked a toy up off the floor from next to my daughter she's like what if the dog takes the baby I'm like he's not going to attack the child that's not what they do 
And then she was freaking out. I was working heaps of hours. I wasn't really fair. So I gave him away to some people who had horses and a big farm. So I haven't had one since then. So for years, I've desperately wanted another pup, a, a German Shepherd. But um, then when I started looking at Malamars over the last couple of years, I was like, yeah, I just want to get something that's full on. So it sort of probably covers three aspects. One is it gives me a great um, rabbit hole to go down with ADHD just to train her and get her really switched on. And the second part is it's really good for me because it makes me get away from work. And then just having the companion, that that whole thing, having a dog with me all the time, I've got a cage in my car. So, you know, it's awesome. Yeah, I just love it. So good. Well, I think we should, because I'm probably going to add in this com- part of the conversation to the podcast, but um, I think we yeah, should sure. sort of start going. Um, so I'm I'm at chapter 47 in the book at the moment, so I'm yep. well, I'm well, I think I've about an hour, an hour left to go. I'm doing the audio book as we're driving. Um, so it's very, it's a very honest account and it's very raw. Why did you decide to be so honest? And I want to have that answer before we go into your career pre-book. Yeah, sure. Um, A very simple thing. I go, all the challenges that I've been through in my life, mostly self-created, mum and dad, policing, whatever, divorce, family court, I went into it all so naive and ignorant of what was happening. And I just look and think, if I had had someone like me that was 20 years older than me, that I could have looked at their story and gone, oh, shit, here's the red flags or here's the signposts or here's something that I can keep an eye out for. I was blissfully ignorant. Well, not blissfully. I was ignorant and unaware of how my behavior was creating the problems. So I didn't want to write an, another book that, you know, a lot of police or military guys write that's like, you know, I surrounded by 10 people and I, and I killed them all for paperclip. And I had a few challenges and then that's it, you know, where it's 95% I'm the toughest man in the world. <laughs> Haven't killed 20 no, men no, in the paper Not yet, but life's not sure. over. Life's not over, feet, so it might happen. <laughs> so I wanted to be a really raw account to go, you know, you can do, when I look back at my police career, I did some pretty cool stuff there and and I've achieved some really good things in this business, even in the corporate world. And to be go, you know what, you can make a lot of mistakes. You can have imposter syndrome. You can have a lot of insecurity and fear because that's also very normal, but no one talks about it. So I wanted mm. my book to be something that people could read and go, holy shit, this guy gets me, as in I go through the same stuff. So even if it's someone like you and I, where we're very different backgrounds, a whole lot of, there's not a lot of commonality in who we are as humans and our experience, probably, I'm guessing, that you can read the book and go, oh my God, it's like he's writing this about me because your version taps into that. That was sort of always my goal. And I've had a lot of people say to me, like cops and soldiers, of course, but then I've had a lot of other people reach out to me from, you know, different places actually around the world even and saying, wow, this is, you wrote this book and I'm, you know, I'm an accountant, a female accountant in Ontario in Canada and it's like you wrote my story. Because really to me it's, I wanted it to be um, the Jenny Craig equivalent of for mental health, if you like, like the before and after Mm -hmm. photo sort of aspect. And I just wanted to be really honest because I just, Never want to be someone, integrity is my number one virtue where I go, I never want to be someone that people go, oh, this guy's full of shit or that leaves parts out because it would be easy for me to go, oh, I had this great career and I did this great stuff and I had PTSD and then it was all awesome, but that's never been the case. So I just wanted to be really raw and honest so people got the most help out of it. That's why I wrote it. Well, 
the book is called um, My Dark Companion, <clears throat> and it starts off really right back at square one in regards to talking about your childhood and everything before you got into the police force. Um, you talk about the pressures or you idolising your dad who was a a very highly decorated police officer in mm -hmm. uh, the police force. Explain why you actually wanted to go into the police force given the fact that you had a lot of imposter syndrome and which I think most people can relate to, I certainly can relate to. <clears throat> and considering that level of added pressure to that as well, going into the police force with that yeah, sure. shadow over it, you in, in that regard. Yeah, sure. It's really funny for you. A lot of people have said that to me. I never felt like I was in his shadow or there was pressure. I felt it as um, I wanted to do it from the time I could remember because he was a very, well, he is a very big personality, very, very well respected in the police. All I heard my whole childhood growing up was when dad, and he wasn't around, like he worked a lot and whatever. Uh, so he wasn't around a lot. He wasn't a dad that we went to the park and kicked footies. I'd never, ever did that with him. So my whole experience of him was either him and I working on cars in the garage at home because that's what he wanted to do. And that was very much a generation thing. He's not Robinson Crusoe and that. But everything I heard was about doing something significant, helping people, doing something bigger than yourself. So my dad's a very altruistic guy. He's a very courageous man. And he's a guy that in that policing environment just shone like he was bigger than Ben-Hur, like he was just so large in life. So I looked at it and went, that's what I want. I want to do something where that matters. And I want to do something that isn't just ticking a box. So when I actually got into the police, I never felt pressure to live up to him because we're essentially the same personality. Like we're exactly the same person. And I talk to him now and I'm very grateful. Like he's had his own challenges in his life with, you know, broken relationships and PTSD post his career and things. He's actually someone I'm very grateful to because we're so similar that I got to the age when I left the cops and when I had my daughter, I looked at him and went, oh, I don't want to make the same mistakes. So I never felt pressure because I'd really been preparing for it for 19 years, like as, as melodramatic as that sounds, I guess. So when I got to the cops, I was just so excited to finally get off the bench and start playing the game because I've been sitting for my whole life watching him play the game and just wishing I could be there. You talk very openly <clears throat> about you sort of being um, not disrespectful, I don't think, but you didn't you, you challenged authority a lot um, yep. and didn't listen to advice uh, from others that have sort of already trodden that um, those roads and faced challenges and and sort of ignored their advice. What do you think it was about? your personality or that situation that that enabled you or created you to do that, ignoring these these people that in your eyes probably were more experienced and, and so forth? Was it the imposter syndrome? Uh, that's a great question, actually. I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. I think it's um, – I think there's some generational uh, factors in the sense of all my dad's family, good Irish Catholics, um, are all very much based in service. My pop served in World War II. Um, my nana was raised in an orphanage. I think there was probably a healthy disrespect for institution or authority in the sense of, I think it's that old Irish sort of mentality of you can't trust the man or whatever. 
So it's so weird that you went into an institution really, then as a as a career. Correct. Into the place that yeah. Yeah. But and to me the part of the I was never excited about being in the police service. I was excited about being a police officer. So if I look right. at that in hindsight, I did, wouldn't have had this delineation as a young man. But I wanted to be out on the street doing the work. My dad was very much a guy who pushed the limits and broke the rules and, you know, was always butting heads with bosses in the police or whatever. So That's interesting. That didn't come through in the book. You've always talked about him being so highly decorated. Mm. Well, he's like very highly decorated for bravery, but constantly butting heads with bosses because very similar to me, well, I learned it from him. He was of the opinion, he goes, no matter what needs to be done, you do the fucking job and you worry about the consequence for yourself later. So you do whatever you can to help the people who, you know, the victims of crime or the public, like more or less to your own detriment, where I think part of the problem we have today in policing is there's a real culture of I better cover my ass to not get in trouble, which I totally understand. But I even my daughter recently, I was talking to her, she just finished grade 12. She's going to nursing and she did a vocational and educational training in nursing. And she's like, the, I wish I had 10 more of her, the best student I've ever had from the nursing coordinating um, teacher. All the other teachers were the standard, same as my report card. She has great potential, doesn't apply herself, blah, blah, blah. And I spoke to her one day and I said, why do you reckon that is, babe? And she goes, Dad, I just can't listen to people that I don't respect. Mm. And I said, right, what do you mean by that? She goes, well, if they haven't done the thing they're telling me to do, then I don't listen to their advice. I said, okay. I said, well, that's going to cause you some dramas, babe, but I get that. I said, why do you think that is? And she looked at me and goes, ah, because I'm your daughter. Have you met you? <laughs> so yeah, what do you I say think to very that? much it's, <laughs> yeah. And I said, I said, I get it, babe. I said, I am 100% the same way at 52. It's why I run my own business. I'm mm. a terrible employee because I will never just do what I'm told if I don't see the point or I don't think it's the right thing. And it's probably why I struggled a lot and why in a lot of ways I do things the way I do them now and I work with police and military specifically, but also my other high-performance you know, CEOs and business coaching clients. Because if I go and sit with a person, and no disrespect to psychologists or psychiatrists, they do an amazing job. But for me, in my level of arrogance, pig-headedness, whatever it may be called, which is just an innate part of my personality – if someone hasn't walked the talk, have they, if they haven't walked the path that they're telling me to walk, they haven't experienced the thing, then I go, I don't really accept that you know what you're talking about, if that makes sense. And that's probably where my big disdain for authority comes from in the sense of, like, I'm not an anti-government person, you know, I'm not a conspiracy theorist or whatever. I get extremely challenged when I look at most institutions because because I think they are very much run for the benefit of the people who run them rather than the people who should benefit from them. And that's probably where a lot of the challenge with that authority comes from is that I think those institutions are used by the people in power to, you know, better themselves, not better other people and do their, you know, fulfil their their duty, I guess. Well, let's talk about some of that experience now. You entered the police force following in your dad's footsteps and from the get-go, I don't know, it's a boot camp, whatever they call the training process. Academy, yeah, police academy. You were... Um, like the movies. <laughs> yeah, well, they did do 16 of them or some some ridiculous that's numbers. Right, yeah, so. That's right, yeah, <laughs> um, that's right. So in the, in the academy, you were basically labelled 
by a lot of the instructors as difficult and you barely scrape by in your own words. Yeah. <clears throat> you then prove yourself wrong, uh, them wrong rather, yourself right, and um, end up in the the dog squad, which is an elite squad. Talk to me yep. about that being a changing or how that changed your career and how you perceived yourself within that institution, which you don't like. Yeah, sure. So, <laughs> yeah, so there's one guy in particular who was my instructor at the police academy who's a former dog handler. Um, and we stood up one day when we were at the academy, and I'd want to be in the dog squad since I was six. I went with my dad to an open day at the police academy, and they had the dogs jumping through, you know, jumping over fences and through the windows and doing the agility and biting people. And I was like, oh, my God, that looks like the coolest thing ever. So mm. at six, I was like, that's what I want to do. And I never wavered off that my whole life my, as, as a child. And when I got to the to the academy, I was really excited, but was, again, just like school, another pain in the ass phase that I had to get through to get to what I wanted to do, which was get on the street and lock up bad guys. So when this particular instructor, who's a former dog handler himself, and funnily, I just saw, I found a photo on a police page the other day of my dad um, with the premier of the time and four uniformed police that are involved in a pretty serious shootout at the Royal Brisbane Hotel, uh, Hotel Hospital, the Royal Brisbane Hospital. And that guy was in that photo. And I hadn't actually clicked that it was the same guy. So I would say he probably struggling with a fair bit of his own mental health after those incidents. I'm guessing I don't know that. So... But I'm looking at it going, that probably makes sense. Then he's at the academy instructing um, recruits, which is not a normal path that a dog handler would take. And then he, uh, I stood up and I was a smart ass at the academy. And, you know, they, one day that was like, oh, what, what do you want to do when you, you know, if you get sworn in? And I was like, I'm going to, so people are like, I'm going to be a detective. I want to do this. I want to go to the water police, you know, I want to do whatever. And I was the only person in our squad who said, I'm going to go to the dog squad. And he goes, no, you won't make it. And I said, oh, is that right? And he goes, you won't make it, mate. You don't have what it takes or something. You know, There was some sort of comment. And in the back of my mind, I just thought, is that fucking right? So I was like, so I didn't, so I just didn't say anything. And then, you know, it was, it was just a tip. Like I was at high school, it was just a class clown. Like I was a really difficult, not all the time, but certainly if there was an opportunity to be a smart ass, I was a smart ass. And in hindsight, I go, that sort of sarcastic sense of humor is a defense mechanism to, you sort of hide in plain sight, I guess, is is probably the best way to describe that because my insecurities. I get through them, you know, go to uniform, do some, a few other things, and then get in the dog squad at ninety in at twenty two in nine ninety two. So I was the second youngest guy ever to get in the unit. The youngest guy was a great guy, became a great mate of mine. I did my first course with who was twenty. So when I got in, I hadn't even passed the course. We were at the academy one day, and like training dogs and I knew he was still there. So I went looking for him and found him and just walked, like walked up to him in my dog squad uniform. And I hadn't passed the course. So I wasn't in the squad. If you fail a course, you, you don't get in the unit. But I was so self-righteous to just walk up and go, you said I wouldn't fucking do it. I did it. And he was like, huh? What are you talking about? He, he wouldn't have even remembered the conversation, but I'd carried that. And that was a, a theme for me in my life for a long time. I constantly had this, People challenge me, they they're my enemy almost. 
And without going too far down the psychology rabbit hole, I'm a self-diagnosed ADHD person, which is no surprise. I've done a multitude of online tests that all just about blow the computer up when I enter them. So it's obviously pretty strong. And a big part of that is a thing called rejection sensitivity dysphoria. And when I worked out, my partner, Rach, pointed out to me only probably 12 months or two years ago. And she goes, hey, babe, look at this. What do you think? And as I read it, it said, like, you're hypersensitive to other people's opinions. You're hypersensitive to criticism. You basically read far too much in what people say or do about you. And I was like, holy shit, the last 50 years makes perfect sense. So that guy's making a passing comment to me at the police academy probably um, to try and, you know, get one back on me because I was a real smart ass and pretty sarcastic. And I took it so personally. And that was a theme through my entire life. So when I then got in the dog squad, I was like, this will be, when I joined the police, I was like, this will be it. Now I'll be really happy because I wasn't real happy as a teenager and struggled a fair bit with a whole lot of stuff. Um, Dad not being around, challenges my mum and stuff. And then, um, so I get the academy, get sworn in. I'm like, well, this isn't it. And I was like, well, if once I get the dog squad, that'll be the best thing ever. So then I even got there. And for a short time, it was amazing. Then even after that, for a while, I was like, well, this isn't it. So it was always this, once I get that, I'll be happy. And even once I hit the dog unit, that wasn't it. So it was, uh, I was sort of forever chasing the thing that was going to change my life without realizing it was me making all the bad choices. Let's go back to your um, career now, because it was, how long were you in the police force for? 13 years. And how long of that was in the police, uh, it was in the dog squad? Nine, nine years. And you were still in the dog squad when you got out? Yeah, yeah. So I did an initial stint, like I think seven, seven and a half years, got out, went to covert surveillance unit for, so where you're like dressed, plain, dressed in plain clothes, beard, long hair. You're not undercover, but you're doing, you're following people around in a covert capacity. I applied to go undercover. I had a lot of friends of mine that were covert police operatives, failed the psych test. It said I'd be violent, take drugs and fabricate evidence. I'd never believed in psych tests till that came back. I was like, holy shit, this stuff's pretty accurate. Um, and I'd lied on the test thinking I was a genius. I was going to be able to trick it. And obviously I, I couldn't. So I went back to the dog squad for the last sort of 18 months um, of my career. But that was, I was already pretty cooked by that stage. So yeah, nine years total. Talk about the tempo that you were dealing with in the dog squad and some of the significant events that contributed to your PTS because you at one point sat down with a psych I'm saying a psychologist, I don't know if it was, some form yeah, of therapist. Yeah. And um they said that the tempo was the equivalent of a forty year career. Um mm. even though obviously in terms of time it hadn't been that length of time. So just just for those that are listening that haven't read the book, explain sort of the tempo um that you were dealing with in in the dog squad. Yeah, sure. It um to explain what a dog handler does, and this only clicked for me in the last two years. I've been back out to the Brisbane Dog Squad doing a fair bit of work with them around resilience and culture and different things. And I talk to a number of those uh, guys and girls now, helping them with different stress and, and different things. You are essentially, as a general purpose dog handler, so there's what's called detection dog handlers that, that like that are, look for explosives or drugs or devices or whatever. Now that still has its challenges for sure. You're still doing you're going to drug raids every day for, you know, bikies or whatever, so it's still quite dangerous. But as a general purpose dog handler, you are on your own with a German Shepherd, Malamar, whatever, 
you only go to the jobs that are high risk, high violence, high tempo. So you're not going to um, traffic accidents. You're not going to welfare checks. You're not doing, you know, going to interview people for statements because of something that happened somewhere else. You're not doing any of that. All you do is hands-on chasing bad guys. So it's awesome. But it's, at 22, they gave me a gun, a dog, and a car. You work from home, your car's at home, your gun's at home, your dog's at home. So essentially in my mind, and this wasn't, I'm sure what the boss was thought, but in my mind it was like, here's your dog, your gun, your car, go fucking berserk. And that's pretty much what I did. And I worked so hard because I just loved it. So I couldn't get enough. Excuse me, there was no paperwork, which I hate paperwork, so that was awesome. So all I did was just job to job to job to job. And the way I did it, and there were certainly other guys that and and one girl at the time that was the same. I would go to any dog job I could get. So someone's you know, breakers on premise, someone breaks in a house and runs. There's a car chase, they run from a stolen car, arm robbery, domestic violence, and then the offender runs, murders you, like whatever. So anywhere where someone is violent or commits, you know, a reasonably serious offense and then leaves on foot or potentially leaves on foot, you we go to. They go to. And you get there, you're on your own. There's a, you got you, your dog, that's it. And the dog is essentially, so you track the freshest human scent, so you track the scent of the person that runs off. So you don't know, and you're relying on the dog, and this is what clicked for me a couple of years ago, and I said it to the guys at the dog squad, and they were like, holy shit, I never thought of it. Your job is to go and run through the dark, you know, through the bush, backyards, whatever, on your own with a German shepherd or whatever dog that is essentially trained to drag you into an ambush with whoever you're chasing. Because the dog doesn't understand fear or danger, of course. The dog doesn't understand if someone's got a gun or not. So they're like, if I get this guy to the bad guy, then I get to bite the bad guy or I get rewarded and, you know, dad loves me and it's the best thing ever. So, and the way the scent works without boring with you too much of it, but essentially we we drop skin cells and odor and everything as we as we walk. So, so there's a scent cone and then over time it drops down and it becomes more on the ground so you think the size of a human being there's you know odor and skin cells and all sorts of stuff that's drifting around you and it floats out a bit like um is it linus in the in um i can't remember and what's the cartoon i'm thinking of anyway um so it's the dog chases that scent and as it goes through the cloud of scent if you think of it that way then once if an offender stops and hides, then the scent builds higher and there's a bigger bubble of it. So the dog will run through the bubble and then as it gets out the other side, it takes it a period of time, a little distance to realise there's no more scent and then it casts itself back to try and pick it up again. You use a, a 30 foot, whatever that is, a metre is about a, probably seven metre or, or eight metre line rope that's attached to a harness on the dog and invariably... The reason that is, I now realise, and I don't know if anybody actually deliberately did this, that's about the length of how long it takes a dog to realise it's not in the scent. So when you get the dog stops and pulls its head up off the ground and that's you go, oh, it's missed it, and then you say seek is the command and it starts circling on the lot like a lasso looking for the scent, you invariably end up so many times right next to the offenders or within a couple of metres and they're secreted in the bush or wherever they are, you can't see them. So, so many times, like I look back now and think I'd, you know, caught quite a few people with firearms and it's really dangerous like that. 
but I never thought of it. So all I did all day, every day was do those jobs, which I loved. If there was none of those jobs, I would go hunting other sort of work, like pulling up cars and never write traffic tickets or anything. I had no interest in that. But if I was driving around going, that car looks stolen or they look dodgy, I'd just pull them up on my own at three in the morning and talk to them and turn them over. I'd go to domestics all the time because there was a lot of violence. There was a lot of sieges in those days came out of domestics because there was a lot more firearms around. It was pre-Port Arthur. Uh, so quite a few in the 80s? veterans would, yeah, uh, late yeah. 80s, early 90s. So Port mm-hmm. Arthur was 96 or 7, I think. Mm-hmm. So, and then even after Port Arthur, like fire, it still took a long time to get guns off, you know, back from people. So we, I would go to heaps of jobs where there were sieges with like a Vietnam veteran or an ex or a military veteran that had a firearm and obviously had PTSD, even though it wasn't well managed back in those days and they'd have a domestic and they'd hold their wife hostage. So I'd go to as many of those jobs as I could. So I wasn't necessarily using the dog. I'd go to domestics, I'd go to pub fights. I would spend most of my Thursday, Friday, Saturday nights doing laps of Brisbane CBD, which no other dog handlers, a couple did, but hardly any did because you can't use a dog in the city. So most guys would just patrol the suburbs and wait for dog jobs I'd be in the city going from fight to fight to fight, like any brawl I could find, backing up the uniform cops. So, you know, I might be in seven or eight violent pub fights and on a really good, i.e. bad night. Um, and then, you know, we go lights and sirens, 20 minutes or 30 minutes to a, to a violent dog job, track and try and find those people back in the car, drive fast back into the city for another fight to another job, and I'd go all over Brisbane. So the tempo was really high because I wanted it to be high. And there was no one supervising me in the sense of, and that's not like, thank God there wasn't, it would have been boring. They would have stopped, stopped <laughs> me doing heaps of fun stuff. But it's, um, there's sort of nobody going, hey, mate, you work too hard. You're doing too many jobs. You're doing whatever. So I was in trouble all the time for crashing police cars, but I just reverse into things because there's a big cage in the back and you couldn't see it. There was no reverse, uh, reverse sensors or blowing them up. So, you know, I drive them so hard that I'd blow a motor up a couple of times, burn out brakes. So I was really rough on my gear on vehicles and then they the bosses would get the shits. you got to slow down, you're going too fast. And I'd go, what are you fucking talking about? I'm catching heaps of people. It's not like I'm doing, I'm not going to a race circuit to drive the car fast for fun. Like I'm driving fast to go to jobs. So the more violence I could find, the better. And then on top of that, I ended up being on one of the two dog handlers in Brisbane that did all the cert, so the special weapons team work. So then I was also doing raids with them and it wasn't unheard of for me to work 8 p.m. to 4 a.m. shift doing dog work. And then there'd be a cert job on where we'd get there at three in the morning to kit up and get ready and go do a dawn raid. And I'd work my shift. Then I'd go and do the dawn raid and I just wouldn't claim out like they wouldn't pay overtime. So I'd just then pencil on the roster that I was on the 3 a.m. till midday or whatever shift. So I could do both. So I might be at work for 16 hours or because I just loved it. I just couldn't get enough of it. When did you realise that it was starting to catch up with you? In hindsight, during my career, I didn't. Um, I actually had no idea. Even when when those two guys after that chase where they shot at you and... Yeah, they killed themselves? Yeah. No, like that... You might need that, to – let's explain that now that we've sort of – so there yeah, was sure. a shootout and a car chase. Yep. yep. 
So essentially, two guys went out with the express purpose of suicide by cops. They were going to jail for trafficking drugs. They went out, ran a red light in front of a detective's car. They went to pull them over. They shot out the window. The two side windows on the detective's car started shooting at them. And they were in a twin cab holding Rodeo Ute. And they ended up in uh, New Farm, which is the first sort of suburb out of Brisbane City in Fortitude Valley. I was not far out of town. I raced in there at a million miles an hour and ended up getting into the chase. And I ended up being second car in the chase out of seven or eight police cars. And they, one of the offenders was sitting on the windowsill of the passenger's door with a rifle on the roof, a two-two-three automatic rifle and a semi-automatic rifle on the roof, shooting us at us as we were chasing them. And they, um, the vehicle in front of me, the uniform car with a male and female in it, had 24 rounds, bullets in that vehicle when the pursuit, when the job finished. And they had, they'd fired dozens more rounds than that. Um, so they crashed at the top of the Brunswick Street Mall and the uniform car got through. There was a big light pole fell. My car got hung up on it and the offenders got out of the car with, with a, one rifle. They had two on the vehicle. They got, took one. And they're running down the Brunswick Street Mall with the rifle. I'm on foot. I forgot to take my dog. I left Khan in the car. He would have been pretty useful. And I'm running down the mall with a revolver, chasing these guys, and they kept pointing, turning around and pointing the weapon at me. But I, it was a Monday night about 11 o'clock. I couldn't take a shot at them because there was too many people in, in the background. And obviously, if you know, if you miss them and kill someone, it's not going to be a great thing. We chased them down the mall on foot. The other uniform car with male and female in it, all of the other cars had got caught up they couldn't get down the mall, so they were going around the block. So it was just the three of us, cops and two baddies. We're down the corner, down Wickham Street, went down one block. By this stage, there's probably a dozen police cars um, had come up Wickham Street the wrong way, and we sort of had them pinned under an awning. They didn't know where to go, and I was in the middle of the intersection on my own no cover. I had my, my revolver cocked, and I was walking in on them, screaming every obscenity on the sun to say, you know, drop the weapon, drop the weapon. The driver, which we didn't know at the time, but later realized that he was a driver, had the weapon pointing towards the sky, so he was holding it up. So it wasn't like he dropped the barrel to point it at me. So I really wasn't justified in taking the shot at that point because he hadn't, I wasn't in imminent threat because he wasn't pointing it at someone, which is the whole legislative thing that police struggle with. Even though they've shot dozens of rounds, that doesn't justify shooting them then. Um, and that's what police struggle with all the time, those decisions. So I'm walking in on him. He looks me dead in the eye, puts a gun um, under his chin, pulls the trigger, shoots himself. He hits the ground. I start moving in on the second guy who had no weapon at that stage. And I'm screaming at the sirens. It's so noisy. And I'm screaming at him, you know, get on the ground, get on the ground. He leans down, picks the rifle up. I'm just about to squeeze around off. And he, he puts in his mouth, uh, puts in his mouth, pulls the trigger, hits the ground, dies. Might have been the other way around, but then one under the chin, one in the mouth. He hits the ground. I run in on him, kick the rifle out of the way. And it was a winter. He put his hand, he had a big jacket, sits up. I put my foot on his shoulder, slam him back in the ground, my gun in his head, he dies. Go back to the first guy. The first guy actually lived. So that um, then we did hours of walkthroughs with homicide and all sorts of stuff. So that job, I was terrified, absolutely terrified. But, and the voice in my head as I'm running down the malls, like, just go the other way. Like, what are you doing? You don't have to be here. Like, it's that whole fight or flight safety thing. But I just kept pushing because I'm like, there's no way I can't. You know, if he killed a cop or hurt somebody else, whatever, you know, that's that's what you do when you join the police is to do those things. So that didn't, like, I, if I was, and I drank pretty heavily, was that was a culture. If I was pretty drunk 
and talking to guys about their job, I would often get teary about it. I would often get pretty impacted. So that morning, that was 11 o'clock at night. I got home at about midday, tried to sleep, couldn't, went back to work at two. And then a couple of friends of mine um, um, sent me pages, page of messages. There's no phone. And um, said, if you want to catch up for a beer, let me know. So I went and had a couple of had beers with these two guys and I was pretty shaken. I'm running through the job. And then pretty much after that, I just buried it in the sense but, of if I was pretty- you say, But you say in the book you actively avoided, you realised that it affected you and you actively avoided giving a statement in regards yeah, to what sorry, happened. Yeah, sorry. Just, yeah, that's what I was just about to say, Fee. Oh, so what, sorry. I knew it. No, you're right. No problems, mate. I'll talk for 20 minutes unbroken if you don't stop me. Um, the I knew it was... <sighs> I knew what it impacted me. Me not giving statements was standard because I just never did paperwork. So I was often would get phone calls at seven o'clock in the morning, finish work at four from my senior sergeant going, I've got this detective on the phone. There's court today. Where's your fucking statement? I'd go, oh, and I'd go into work on my you know, at seven in the morning and do a statement. up. Like I, I just stand and not hand my homework in. So, but I found I just, in hindsight, looking at it, didn't do statements, didn't talk to any HSOs or you know police psychologists. None of them ever contacted me, but I didn't go looking for it. And I really just buried that job and just kept working. So I knew it impacted me in the sense you can't be in a, a gunfight and then someone shoots themselves in front of you and go, hey, I'm all good. But I was like this, I don't know what to do with this. And my dad had shot and killed a guy in 1978 and had been in multiple shootings where he'd been shot at. He'd shot only shot one person. And I rang him the afternoon like that when I got home from that job. And I said, hey, I've just been in that job in the valley. He goes, oh, shit, were you in that? And I said, yeah, I was a second car in it, blah, blah, blah. He's like, holy shit. I said, how do you deal with this? I said, like, you've had to, and I remember the date. I remember the guy's name and everything that dad had to shoot. So I watched it on the news. Um, And I was like, how did you get over that? And I said, how do you deal with, how do you get over this? He goes, well, if you find out, let me know, because I never got over that. So I was sort of like, oh, so we talked about it. And really what we came up with was shit shit happens. You just sort of and and he didn't say bury it, but it was like, that's the job, mate. I, I don't know. So he was like really honest with me to go, fucked if I don't know how to manage it. So I was like, hey, fuck, yeah, great chat. <laughs> Thanks, mate. <laughs> like hung up the phone and pretty much then just buried it. And the only time it came out was if I drank really heavily and we started telling more stories and I'd start talking about it and then I'd feel a fair bit of emotion and then I'd sort of bottle that up. So I knew what had impacted me, but I didn't see the signs. That was 1994. So I was only in the dog unit two years. But I was already getting angrier. I was already drinking more. I was in conflicted relationships. But that was like every other fucking police officer that was around me. So I was like, it wasn't like it was a... I was a standout by any means. It more I fitted in, so I was like, oh, this is normal. There was an incident later on that you actually scared a fellow officer. She mm-hmm. thought you were going to kill somebody. Mm. Tell that story, and you mentioned that that was a, a turning point because you realised that she was more scared of you than the offender. Yeah. So that was the last job I ever did in the police in 2001. And it was a bikey. He had stabbed another bikey, an outlaw motorcycle gang member, I think 14 times from memory. I was working in Logan, south of Brisbane, which is pretty violent. I got called to go to that job. Um, 
they call it so the way it used to happen and it's a little bit different now but they would call an any unit so any unit code two or code one lights and sirens imminent death threat best job they were the best jobs ever they go code two any unit this address this job i would go to those jobs anyone i could find i'd drive from one side of brisbane to the other they called any unit to this job and i was like no i'm not going in my head i was nearly finished work i'm like no and I realized now, in hindsight, I didn't know what they were. I was having panic attacks reasonably often at work. I'd be driving along in the car in the middle of the day and I'd just be overwhelmed, sense of fear and anxiety and really bad, like, panic breathing. And I'm like, what the fuck? But, I, like, nobody talked about any of this stuff. It's like 20-something years ago now. So eventually they called me by call sign and said, go to this job, Code 2. Now, I never had to be called and told to go to a job, Code 2, ever in my career and more often than not like they only send a couple of cars or one car lights and sirens to most jobs i would go lights and sirens to every job even if i wasn't tasked like that and get in the shit for it so for me not to go was an indicator how bad i was already i went to the job tracked the guy for dog to a caravan it was a rural property and found him in a caravan he came out he was covered in blood and he had a carving knife in one hand machete in the other and as he came to the door he was obviously you know of you know off, off the reservation I was standing in the middle of a sort of clearing around this caravan. The other five police were there with vests and everything, guns out. I had my gun in my holster. Duke, my police dog, was there growling and barking. I had no vest on because I was at a point I just didn't care if I fucking died. And part of me actually wanted to die because it would be – I didn't know how I was going to – like the situation was so out of control, I didn't know how I was going to fix it. There wasn't it – did, it didn't seem to be any way I could fix it. I'm looking at it going, I'm 31. How am I going to live another 30 years like this in the police? There was there was such overwhelm. I was like, I just want out. And I'd battle suicidal thoughts for most of my life. So I was like, um, there was definitely a self-destructive part. So I'm standing there. Our mate comes to the door of the caravan park and uh, the caravan, sorry. And I said, you know, come out. Heaps of um, pretty serious language. I said, come out, get on the ground, blah, blah. He goes, no, if I come out there, you're going to put the dog on me. And I said, absolutely, I'm, I am. I said, but if you don't come out of the fucking caravan, I'll put a bullet in your head. And I drew my Glock out of a drop holster and pointed at his head. And he's obviously looked at me and thought I was more violent and scarier than him. And he just stabbed another bikey 14 times. And he came out, hit the deck. I put the dog straight on him. And we went and handcuffed him and and obviously um, – and because he still had the knives near him, there's a whole lot of tactical reasons I still use the dog. But handcuffed him, walked him back. I didn't really talk to the cops. Like I used to go to jobs. I would go to traffic accidents on night work and direct traffic. And no other dog handler ever did that. Just so I'd go and help the you know other cops out and talk shit and be part of it. Like I just loved it. I walked back, didn't hardly talk to them. They're all looking at me, obviously, now. <laughs> I was thinking I was pretty, pretty bad. Uh, I didn't know them because I didn't mix with going to the police station. I got super anxious and nervous. I'd go to the dog squad office on my own. I'd go to jobs, but I wouldn't hang out and talk to other cops. And I was a king of just dropping into police stations and sitting there for two hours and talking shit with anyone who was there because I just loved it. Go back to the car. We put this guy in the car. He, um, The other cops sort of walk away and I'm about – I put Duke back in the van in my truck and I'm about to leave and they're very close to each other. And this guy, turned, I just hear a noise and I turn around this guy's kicked the back window out, like the side passenger window out, a driver's back window out on the police car. And then he's kicking the back 
um, windscreen window, if you like, of the car out. And just and he's got his handcuffs in front of him. So he's pulled them through his legs and he's got his handcuffs in front of him. He's a pretty big dude. He's covered in blood and he's like, you know, just going off. So I open the door, the back door of the car, and I reach in to grab him and he's trying to bash me with the handcuffs. And I grab him and drag him out of the car and he's trying to hit me on the head. They, they were hinged, big hinged handcuffs at that stage. And he tries to hit me on the head with that and misses. I punch him in the face and we end up on the ground wrestling and he's trying to, you know, obviously trying to grab my gun. That was all pretty violent. And I end up just choking him unconscious and we're rolling in the in the glass. I've got his blood over me and I am think I'm whispering, but in his ear I'm going, I'm going to fucking kill you. You're going to die, like pretty violent stuff. And he goes unconscious. I have a silent lead in my pocket. It was just a piece of rope that we made into a dog lead so it didn't make noise when you were running like a chain. So I used that to tie his feet together then and got his hands behind his back and like trussed him up. Um, and I turn, and as I do all that, that only takes like a few seconds, you know, maybe 30 seconds or whatever. I look up and the other five cops are standing looking at me and they're all just like wide-eyed because the level, he didn't go to hospital or anything, the guy wasn't even badly injured, but the violence of action in me and the violence in my language and just I always um, was of the opinion that if you get into a violent altercation with an offender, you need to go from zero to 100 in the energy of it, not the injury of it. Like I rare, I think I could count on one hand how many offenders went to hospital because of fights or dogs or whatever that in my career. But you have to be willing. They have to think that you're more willing to hurt them than they are to hurt you, very simply. So we cuff this guy up. Um, I like put him in the back of the other car. I say that there's a young policeman there who's obviously a trainee police officer just by her age, and, and um, that's my guess. I say to her, you come with me, I'll drive you back to a place that, to the police station and you can get a van because their car then becomes a crime scene. That's a willful damage, more charges. She gets in the car, we drive down the driveway and I'm back to normal. Like normal was probably nine and a half out of 10 on the lunatic scale, but I'm back to what I felt like was normal. And I look at her, I go, you okay? And she looks at me and she's white and pale and she's got a tear running down her face. And she goes, I thought you were going to kill him. And I said, I was, me or him, it's him. And then she just looked at me and looked out the window and then wouldn't talk to me. So I'm like, oh, how's things, blah, blah. Like asked her a couple questions. She said nothing. So then I was just like, I, I didn't talk to her. Dropped her off. It was like a 15-minute drive. Dropped her at the police station. In my head, I'm like, you're weak as piss. You'll never make him the job, blah, blah. Went home. Got home at whatever, you know, 3.30 in the morning. Woke up at some time an hour or so later, shaking, crying, having what I now realized was like a nervous breakdown, essentially. Um, then that ended up being the last shift I worked. But why did she? I mean, he's obviously trying to hurt you. He's obviously trying to escape. Do you think, looking back on it, that your response was disproportionate to the violence of the event that the offender was putting out? No, definitely not. Not at all. I think the to put it very simply, because I dealt with a lot of violence and a lot of cops do, like I wasn't an exceptional police officer by any means, but I was willing to engage in it because I wanted to protect people. Mm. I think because I was pretty comfortable in violence, when he came out really violently, I had a fear response, but I wasn't by any means put off by that. I enjoyed mm. that. So probably, actually, and I've never thought of it like this as you say that, but potentially what rattled her was the fact that I wasn't 
over the top, I was really probably pretty calm, but violent. So mm. I was probably quite calm in the sense of I was like, this has got to be done. And as I was fighting him, I'm like, I will fucking kill you. And it probably was quite, it's not panicked or yelling. It was probably quite calm, calm almost. So more chilling. Yeah, 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 chilling. Thank you. Mm. That's the word. Yeah, for sure. That's potentially, that might have been what it was actually, as I think about it. Where do you think this protective drive came from? You've mentioned it a few times and and you mentioned in the book in regards to wanting to protect the public. Obviously, your dad was served, but where did that come from with, from within you? I think it was a it's an epigenetic thing through the O'Gorman family. My, so my, I said my pop went to World War II. My nana was raised essentially in an orphanage for it's a little bit more detail that, but but essentially she was uh, her mum gave her up to a Catholic convent at three years of age. She couldn't afford to keep her, and she was born out of wedlock in the nineteen teens or nineteen you know, early nineteen hundreds. I think those two individuals came together, and my nana had such a drive to look after people because she never had that. So my nana, they had eleven kids of their own, and then fostered four more. Um, one of my aunties was fostered out of the Stolen Generation, uh, uh, First Nations woman. They fostered three other kids. And then all the greatest majority, not at all, I'd say probably 80% of my uncles and aunties, um, like blood relatives, obviously, of my dad's siblings were like there was three nuns and there was another cop, as uh, defence lawyers, barristers who do heaps of pro bono work, nurses. So it was a, a whole lot of that service to community type personality in their generation and then my generation is very similar soldiers cops um well i'm the only cop um barristers lawyers again doctors occupational therapists so there's a lot of people that are engaged in jobs that are about helping others and then when i look at my oldest daughter she has that genetic streak that's why she's doing nursing and like I said to her recently, I said, so, you know, why nursing? Well, she's doing, um, she's a nursing assistant. Uh, she did a cert two and three in nursing or health or whatever at an aged care facility before she starts training nursing as a part-time job. And I said, how's that go, babe? And she says, yeah, good. Like she's worked a couple of double shifts. She's worked night work. She's only been out of school like since, you know, four, four five weeks, six weeks. And she's working all these shifts. And I said to her, hey, sweetheart, you know, at some stage people are going to die, right? And I said, nursing can be really stressful and you might, you know, have some some impact. So make sure you let me know, like, that's what I do, blah, blah. She goes, yeah, you know, I would. I said, like, how do you think you'll go when someone dies? Like, that might be a challenging thing for you, hun. And she lost her to her mum's mum and dad, their grandparents in the last, you know, three years. And she goes, dad, it'll be sad, but I see it as my job to make them as happy and comfortable and peaceful as they can as they die. And I was like, wow. I said, that's pretty amazing. I said, why do you think that is, babe? She goes, look at you and like most of our family, that's just what we do. So I think for me, it was that very similar. There was never going to be anything else for me. Like I had no interest in money I didn't really care about, I was terrible with. Um, I would have done policing for free because the satisfaction of being a police officer and helping people, exactly why I do what I do now, right? And when I look back, I got offered, I worked at a law firm for 12 months or something when I had to go back and redo night school because I failed high school because I, I didn't give a shit about it. 
And I worked for the law firm. And in that time, when I was leaving to go to the police, the partner, there was a small firm got bought out by a very large national firm. And the partner there said to me, um, so I was just going filing documents at in court buildings and, and whatever. He said to me, don't go to the police, stay here. We will pay for your law degree and we will um, basically sponsor me to do my law degree and there'll be a job for you at the end of it and wouldn't have cost me anything that would have paid me to do it. And I didn't even ask the details. I said, oh, look, thank you. His name was Bernie Knapp. He was a lovely gentleman. I said, thank you, Mr. Knapp. I really, really appreciate that, but I'm not interested. I'm going to the police. And he looked at me like I had three heads. And now in hindsight, I've spoken to a lot of people that are lawyers and around that time, and they're like, I'd never, ever heard of that. Mm. So this guy obviously saw something in me that he was like, I've, I've got uh, one of my uncles is is very, very well-known um, defence lawyer and was president of the National Civil Liberties Council for many years. So whether that was played into it, I don't know. But I think he just, there was something he saw in me that he was like, I want to sponsor this guy. He would be an asset to me. And I just didn't even think about it. I was like, no, I'm good. I'm going to get the police. So there was never anything other than a job where I could impact and help people. That um, selfless pursuit ended up, you mentioned the panic attacks, but you ended up with PTS uh, from that. Do you say the, do you mm-hmm. say the D at the end? Is it PTS or PTSD? Oh, look, I say PTSD. Fee, I don't get too caught up on it because I go, um, people say it's not a disorder. I go, it's an absolute disorder. It, it creates absolute chaos and disorder in your life and in, in everything. So I think for me personally, I don't get caught up on labels. I go, it is what it is. Um, if people don't, if they want to call it PTS for their reasons, I don't care. Like I'm like, you do you. Mm. Well, <clears throat> the job that you mentioned in regards to the the offender with the knife and you acting in a chilling way to to subdue yep. him. Yep. You mentioned that's your that's your last shift. Was it nine months before you resigned from the police force? Yep. You should have realistically got medically discharged, but you didn't. You were elected to resign yep. um for various mm-hmm. reasons. But you also talked about how dark it was for you during that period and after. Mm. Talk talk me through that. Mm. Yeah, there's a couple of factors. So the reason um, I'll sort of go through a little bit chronologically. So I leave the dog squad literally that that was a Friday night, Saturday morning when I had the panic attacks. I woke up, felt like shit. Uh, a number of good friends of mine from the dog squad and CERT, special weapons team, we were going to the races for a day and drinking and um, horse racing. So I thought I'm gonna I'm not going to work. I'm gonna go and do that. So I went to the doctor to get a certificate because it was a Saturday. He, you know, checks my vitals, does whatever. He goes, oh, what are you doing? I said, oh, I just don't feel great, Doc. I was warming up to some sort of, you know, diarrhea or something else, some other shit excuse. He goes, I think you've got glandular fever. And I said, yeah, yeah, me too. That's why I came here. It wasn't. He was talking about hospitalizing me at that stage. He goes, mate, your respiration's to the roof. He's like, and I didn't realize I was even sick. I didn't even realize, you know, that I had glandular fever. So, and it's, for people who don't know what that is, it's a very debilitating, uh, similar Ross River fever. It's called something else in the States. I can't remember what it is now. Where essentially people get knocked out for months and are bedridden essentially with no energy or whatever. I was still going to work, showing up, doing everything, training. So um, he goes, go home and go to bed. 
or I'm going to call an ambulance and see the hospital. It's like, okay, doc, yeah, okay, I'll just go home and get a bit. So I went home, got changed into a suit, went to the races, drank from 12 midday till three in the morning, um, got in a fight with my best friend at the time, broke his nose, and then woke up Sunday, obviously, with the, the horrors, the demons, hangover. Went back to the doctor Monday. He goes, you are going to hospital. He got the blood test back. I said, no, no, no. So I just went home and I took three. He gave me three weeks sick leave for Glenzel fever. And he said, then come back. You'll be off for, you know, it was a long time. In that three weeks, the wheels just fell right off. Like I was, I had a little break from the police. I was like, I can't go back. What I'm going to do. My dad and I had a pretty intense few days of arguing I'd ring him and I now see he was battling his own stuff for so many years, but just like me, just kept pushing. So when I rang up and said, I don't think I'm going back, you know, blah, blah. He goes, you can't quit. Don't be a coward. And I was so angry about it at the time, but in hindsight, I look back and go, he couldn't admit at that stage that what I was going through was real because then he had to look at himself and go, it was the same. And he did 42 years. So he had done significantly more things than me. Now from a, he was so well-renowned as a, as a hard worker. Now, who knows whether the stuff because the dog squad filled my bucket faster. Like, who knows? I don't know. But Dad did significantly more police work than I did. Um, then I went through the whole process, psychologist, psychiatrist. I went to psychiatrist, um, Dr. Gary Lada. His name was awesome guy. And only two or three years ago, I caught up with a cop that I was helping out, and she... Uh, she a policeman reached out to me. I was really struggling, and I I went and saw her, and and when I, I said his name, she goes, "Oh, that's my treating psych." So she was seeing the same guy. So I gave her a copy of my book. I said, "Please give him this book and tell him, you know, that's that he helped me immensely." So he diagnosed me with PTSD straight away. He said to me in the office the very first meeting we had, because I had no idea about this process. In two thousand one, I never knew a police officer had been out with PTSD. I didn't know anything about the system, didn't know the process, didn't know who helped you, knew nothing about it. So when I go to this guy's office, I, was, I remember parking around the corner, going in through a back entrance and so no one saw me there. I was terrified of bumping a cop I knew. I was so concerned about that. Going to his office, he goes, tell me about the last week of your career. And I told him and he said, no, 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 I don't want the last month. I want the last week. I said, that is the last week. And he goes, holy shit. And I, and I had been on a go slow for a number of weeks or probably months where I only went to jobs I was called to. Go back to the height of my dog school career and I was at every freaking job. I was doing probably seven or eight times as many jobs and violent stuff as he's saying to me is like pretty over the top. So in that meeting, he said to me, he goes, mate, you have done – he said, you have PTSD like a Vietnam veteran has PTSD. And him and I had, I stood up, I was in tears and very nearly, I was never actually going to fight him, but I was like, get fucked, how dare you? Like I was abusing him. I said, those men were crawling through tunnels, chasing Viet Cong in a horrible guerrilla warfare. I said, I spent mm. half my time doing laps of the city trying to get girls' phone numbers. So I said, like, like, like I was so offended for those veterans to be put in that group. I'm like, fuck, because in my mind, I'm like, you're just soft, you're weak. Um, So he kept treating me. He was awesome. Then I had to go and do an independent medical examination, which is part of the process which I was unaware of, where the work cover in Queensland is the insurer. So it's essentially like a car crash. 
if someone runs into my car, then it's assessed by an insurance assessor. They go, well, we think it's worth this. I'm like, get a quote. It's worth this much money. We'll pay you this much money. And then it's a negotiation. That's yep. what that's what this is. And I didn't know that. So I went and saw this psychiatrist at Twong Private Hospital. I sit down with him. He's like, this, this, blah, 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 blah. And at that stage, I I didn't think I could go back, but I was terrified to not go back because I didn't know what else I would do. He um, said to me at the end of that, he goes, mate, you, you're good. Like you should be back at work. Now I realize now his job was to try and end the insurance claim. Now I'm not saying mm. he was fraudulent. I'm not saying he's lying. I'm not saying whatever, but he read in me whatever it was. And I was pretty good at the mask. You know, I had a mask for years. So he's looking at me, obviously from reading the reports, probably expecting me to be a mess or I'm not whatever. So he's determined. He goes, no, you're fine. They're, Back then, it's only very recently, there's a presumptive legislation of PTSD for police officers now, so you don't have to prove that you have it. Back then, you had to prove it. So when I was on sick leave, I was constantly scared of the insurers used to use surveillance people to follow people that were on claims for work cover, like someone who had a bad back in a you know, a warehouse job. They'd go and get photos of mowing their lawn or doing something else to disprove the claim. They were known to follow police and take photos of them to try and put you under surveillance to try and prove you're lying about PTSD or about mental health, whatever. So I um, was paranoid about that. And I only found out about that during the process. I So I would go out with my undercover mates and, you know, drink pretty heavily because that was the only time I felt good. And I'd be at a pub. I remember being at the Story Bridge Hotel vividly one day and I'm positive I saw a guy that was there taking photos of me from a car. And I woke up. And so I was really angry and went out he drove off. And then I was paranoid going, what if he's got a photo of me laughing and being happy? He takes that back to the insurer and they go, get fucked, you're fine. So that was all building. And then when this psychiatrist said that to me, I was just like, right, I'm out. So I just resigned because that confirmed in my mind that I was a coward, that I was weak, that I just couldn't cut it. And so I never wanted to be somebody who ripped off the system. And, And what I mean by that, not the police department, but I'm like, there are cops out there that are fucked. I'm not going to be someone who takes that money. I don't deserve it. They do. So I just resigned. Now, in hindsight, I'm like, probably wasn't that many cops that were more cooked than I was in, in mm. hindsight. Yeah. But I just resigned. So that started you on a a downward spiral. You talk very... Mm-hmm. Um, Candidly about that's probably the one of the darkest periods of your life and you've had suicidal idea, ideation since you're a teenager. Mm-hmm. Um how did you crawl yourself out of that? Yeah, it's a very simple answer. My daughter was born in early 2005 from so I left the place on the like midnight on the 1st of January 2002 essentially New yeah. Year's Eve. Um, in those next two or three years, I became good friends with a couple of ex-NRL players, guys who ran nightclubs. So I was hitting cocaine reasonably hard in ecstasy, drinking heavily, pretty self-destructive. Got married in that time, which probably wasn't the smartest move. And my standard um, comment when I say that, no disrespect to my daughter's mum at all, is I shouldn't have been picking pizza toppings, let alone lifelong partners. Like I was just in no state to do anything. I, I thought I'd be dead. Like I was like, 
nothing long-term concerned me because I thought I'd be dead. I'd kill myself. Or so whatever. you were very self-destructive. Oh, so self-destructive. Riding yeah. motorbikes like a lunatic. Um, yeah, just all like just the very standard police or military sort of story. Do you think and now? Do you think now, looking back on it, you were trying to replicate the danger that you faced at work? Absolutely. I mean, you talked about on that last job not having a, a vest on. Um, mm. You didn't really care. So do you think that you were then replicating that because that failed at work? You were trying to replicate that in your now civilian life? Yeah, for sure. Because I never thought, like, I would. I said to a number of people, and looking back, I don't know where it came from, but I was like, I didn't expect to live past 30 when I joined the cops because I was literally like, the amount of violence and jobs I'm in and I'm doing at some stage that will catch up with me. Mm. And I was, act- I was actually okay with that because the thought of like, and, and it was so weird because there's multiple things I'll say that'll sound contradictory. I really wanted to get married and have my own family because, you know, my mum my and dad I love and they're good people, but I found our that, you know, circumstances pretty challenging. They got divorced. I felt very much on my own. Dad wasn't around much. Mum was, you know, dealing with a lot of her own stuff. So I felt pretty isolated. So I wanted my own family to have that love and, and you know, connection. But equally at the same time, I'm like, I'll probably die because I was riding dirt bikes and motorbikes when I was a cop pretty fast and, you know, I drove fast in the police. So I, there was a lot of risk-taking behavior. And then the same in that intervening period, I think it was just what I loved about policing in hindsight and what I love about what I do now is I love pushing myself in a challenge to see how far I can go. So be that you know, I'm going to the United States in a week to go to SHOT Show, which is a big police and military trade show, and I'm teeing up meetings with police departments and a whole lot of other people over there to try and do some work around police and military, mental health in the States. Because I was at the point here where, I was, where my business is going great, like life's really good. My corporate business is where I make my money. The police stuff, you know, I do a lot of stuff for free. I was with two cops today for free for probably five hours, just chatting to them, two young guys that that reached out to me. And I think I'm just a personality, probably ADD's part of it, that I just can't be normal and sit still. I've mm. got to be doing, hence why I've got a Belgian Malinois as a pup and not a freaking cavoodle because it's just who I am. And the more I lean into that now, Fee, the happier I am. Whereas back then I was trying to live into the expectation if I thought other people wanted me to be. And I am just a, in the community of people who I love now, police, you know, military, or and I've spent a lot more time with, with soldiers and SF guys and that now that I hadn't before the last five years. I started doing some mental health and resilience and leadership stuff in the military. The personalities I love are the guys and girls that I talk to and I hear, like when I met you at that charity event for Brothers and Books, you know, the guys like Troy Knight, the guys like that, that were there that are just – you know, didn't do well at school, didn't really fit in, joined the military or police, you know, infantry soldiers or SF, you know, special forces soldiers because they wanted to do shit that no one else did so they could push themselves. That's just very much who I am. And I tried to live as a normal person, inverted commas. I had a 15-year corporate career in commercial property and I was quite successful at it, but I hated it because it was just boring and it was run by dickheads who just wanted to rip people off for money and I would mm. never do that. So I had challenge in that again. That's another organizational institutional thing where I would, you know, 
fight the bosses I had not head on, but I would I was negotiating contracts with people putting businesses into shopping centers. So I would um, you know, help the people get the best deal they could get because morally it was the right thing to do and because ethically from a business perspective, if people are there, the longer they're there making money, the more rent they're paying, the better it is for the business that of our investors. But again, I was only one of a handful of people when I did that job that thought like that. Everybody else was like, well, if they sign the paper and then their business goes broke in 12 months, that's not my problem. And I'm like, well, whose fucking problem is it? So it was always that sort of thing um, where I just didn't fit, feel like I fitted. And now doing what I do now, I realized looking back that I just never understood that I could live. And this sounds wanky, but I found no better way to put it. If I... and people who are obviously you guys are listening to this, they can't see this, but if I extend my arm all the way to the right, as far as I can go, as far down that continuum as I can, I want to live as a savage. So I mean like doing jujitsu, training hard, being a really strong alpha male who will do whatever it takes to help people. If I'm in a cafe and a guy abuses his partner, then if I need to fight that guy and choke him out, I will. Then as far down the left-hand continuum, if I put my arm out as far as I can to the left, I want to be that emotionally loving and connected and vulnerable and helpful to people. What I did in those years in the police, and I also look now in my corporate life, is I tried to come into the middle and be like what I thought everyone else was like. Because for my whole life, I would look at everyone else and the master people had and think they all had their shit together and I was the only one that was fucked. Now Mm. in what I do now, I'm like, well, everyone is. People just have masks. You talk about the two different people in the book. You talk about the insecure person side of you and then the that arrogant copper side of you as well. Mm. Um, so it's interesting that you bring it up. You bring it up now and, and the that imposter syndrome and how it wreaks sort of havoc on your relationships. People can read the book to, to, to read that side of things. Sure. You, you, when I heard you speak at the Brothers and Books event, and I've just had Dylan on the podcast, his episode. Oh, cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah awesome. Um, so it hasn't been released. Hasn't been released. I'm actually going to edit it tonight and get it out tomorrow. <laughs> so he's, a great, he's a great how... guy, Dylan. And um, when, you listen, when he listens to this interview, he would definitely be the second best person you've had on your podcast. <laughs> exactly. <So>. <laughs> <laughs> when I when I um when I saw Banksy there, because Banksy's had done about four episodes with me telling stories. Keith oh, Banks. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. Listen, yeah. yeah, Keith Banks. Um, he said to me, he goes, oh, I think think Troy Knight's your favourite person now. And, you know, like it's just such a competitive little. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I love for it. sure. Anyway, um, you mentioned that you feel that a lot of health professionals say that you learn to live with PTSD. You don't necessarily get over it and you disagree with that. Um, mm-hmm. I think there's a caveat here saying you're not a mental health professional at this point in terms of a degree. So we have to, we have to put yep. that out there, but you, you, you feel that you have overcome sure. the PTSD and you actually um, now have a career. I don't know how you would term it in terms of resilience training with people as as well from the yep. military and um, first responders. What? How do you think that you overcame your PTSD? You yeah, sure. Um, and you're absolutely right. I'm not a medical professional. I'm not a psychologist. What I have done is 17, anywhere between 17 and 21 years, depending on when you determine it started, of education around personal development and neuroscience, neurochemistry, neuroplasticity, a lot around evolutionary biology, 
I've been down rabbit holes of books, podcasts, courses. I've worked with kinesiologists, hypnotherapists, every happy clapping, caftan wearing weirdo I could find, psychologists. Like I've done it all to try and um, cure, like to try and be happy, essentially. Yeah. Initially, that was all done not for PTSD, but to save my marriage because we had a very conflicted marriage. Now, whether I had PTSD or not, that was always going to be the case, unfortunately. My daughter's mum and I just were like oil and water. We just, you know, was never great. So, and I certainly in the early phases of our relationship was probably the majority contributor to that due to because of PTSD and anger and all those things, of course. Well, you mentioned this before, and you shouldn't have even been picking pizza toppings at no. a life partner. So, yeah. No, I didn't have a clue. And really what I was doing, and this is another one of my bro science backyard beliefs, men have a, a ticking clock biologically the same as women do. Really? In a different aspect. You know, where I was like 30, 30, 29, 30 when I met the girl's mum. And a lot of my friends were getting married, having kids. And I literally, I guess, was looking around going, oh, well, it's just the thing I do. And... We had a lot of challenges. We had, we would argue and have a lot of conflict, never any physical violence or anything like that. But but when I looked around at every other person I knew, and they were all cops, so did they. So I was like, well, this is just relationships. This is just normal. Like it's just constant niggle and arguments and tension. I'm like, oh, this is just marriages. And, you know, my dad has had just um, – he was divorced twice and had just met his third – a partner who he's who he married is married to now, so he had heaps of challenges. So I was just looking around, going, all of the hard charges that I knew, cops or whatever, all had challenges. That just must be par for the course. Um, so the PTSD thing for me, when I started doing all this work and understanding, like there's a lot of generational trauma in families. There's you know childhood stuff, all the stuff. The science is 90 to 95% of your personality is formed by eight beliefs, what you think about the world, life, relationships, money, everything. Then 90 to 95% of that runs subconsciously as an adult, unless you do the work to change it. So I'm essentially not my belief system until, you know, the last probably five, 10 years, five years, whatever, was based on my parents' beliefs. Then theirs was based on their, my grandparents' beliefs, and they were born in the early 1900s, lived through the Depression and you know World War II. So it wasn't all about, um, and the Irish Catholic thing I always talk about because I actually think you know you look at the Catholic religion, there's not a lot of happiness in, in it. It's be miserable and hate yourself, and then you go to heaven. Like that's you know <laughs> very basic. No offense to Catholic people, but you know I'm certainly a very spiritual person. I'm not religious like that, but I look and just think there was so much stress in that going on in my life when i got diagnosed with ptsd it um was bad it was really bad but i just wanted to fix my marriage because when my daughter was born in 2005 and i held her in the delivery room there's a story behind that that i won't waste time on but i eventually just went got to hold her on my own um when the mum was going through the second phase of birthing and i sat and looked at this little girl Look, I was looking at this baby and I was in tears. I thought, holy fuck, I've got to get my shit together because if I don't do something different, I'm going to repeat all of the history that I went through in my life that I was so angry with my mum and dad about, my dad particularly at that point. And I'm like, I'm just going to repeat the same fucking history. I'm going to 
you put my daughter through exactly what I went through. And what I went through was nothing particularly spectacular. It was only that my dad was, you know, I didn't see him a lot. Um, so it wasn't like he wasn't abusive. He wasn't like he's a he's a, a great human being. I love him to death. But neither my, I never felt like I was really that well emotionally supported or loved. Now, that could also go back to that rejection sensitivity stuff. So, you know, it's all my story. I'm sure um, it's probably not that accurate. But I didn't want to repeat that for my daughter. So I just dug in and went, I've just got to do what's fucking necessary. So the same personality that had me do what I did in the police is the same personality that I applied subconsciously. It wasn't a conscious thing to my own personal development. All sorts of hippie habit clapper courses and retreats and stuff I absolutely freaking despised. But I did it because I knew if I didn't, I was going to keep going down the same road. And then I eventually got to a point for you where I was like, yeah, my life's still got what most people consider a pretty high amount of stress in it now. I've got my two daughters, 17 and 14. I don't see them um, hardly ever. I've probably seen them for maybe 12 hours in three years. Uh, I don't hear from them very often at all. Their mum doesn't want them talking to me. There's a whole, we've been through family court. There's a whole lot of challenges. And I won't for their confidentiality or their mums and their privacy and respect to them. I'd never go into detail about that because I just... They haven't chosen to tell their stories publicly. But there's still a whole lot of challenge in that. I text them and send videos every day, tell them I love them, they're amazing, I have their back. I have zero anger towards their mum because I understand she's going through her own whatever that is. I was going to say challenges, but I don't even know if it's challenges. That's a, a summation on my part that has her believe whatever she believes that has us in this situation. I don't have any anger to their mum. I've dealt with so much of my shit by going internally to go, mm. I'm the common denominator in anything that doesn't work. I didn't see my daughters on Christmas Day and I was really upset about it because I told I hurt my back, so I was sitting on the couch on my own Christmas Day having a, a pity party. And I'm in the middle of it just like I chose to be in that marriage. So that's a, that's a possible consequence of my choice to be married. So that's why I don't see them. There's been many other places through that that process where I, I could have done things differently. I don't have any regrets because I go everything in life has got me to where I am. But the curing of the mental health, like depression, PTSD, whatever, I believe it's cured because it doesn't affect me day to day. Now, if I went back to drinking, I gave up drinking seven years ago. If I went back to mm. drinking heavily, eating shit food, not training, not meditating, would it come back? Probably. Well, I'd say definitely, but I've cured it. And the reason I say I've cured it is because if I say I'm managing it, then it still has hold of me. And I'm too fucking pig-headed and arrogant to let anything control me. So I'm not going to wear a badge of poor me. I have this diagnosis of a thing that I can never be any, that I can never handle. And unfortunately, and I will sound pretty tough when I say this, I feel I'm qualified to talk about PTSD because I've been through it. I lay in bed with a Glock in my head for three nights in a row, going to kill myself. I've been on the outside of a 24th or 5th floor balcony at a party when I was on sick leave, going to jump on the Gold Coast. I've been very close a lot of times. So I don't think you can get much darker than that, than actually doing it. So if people get offended because of what I say, in relation to PTSD, I don't give a fuck, to be very honest, because I think, unfortunately, 
we talk way too much about it as though it's an incurable thing that you just have to manage. I don't believe that's true. Most people who go through PTSD, and I talk to them all the time, become victims of it. And the way that we treat it with these people, especially soldiers and police officers, for instance, we all joined a job where we knew we could get killed. And that takes a reasonable amount of whatever, bravery, courage, stupidity, whatever you might think it is. But then we tell these same individuals that they can never, ever get out of the darkness of this diagnosis. And it gives people permission to give up. And then they live shit lives for the rest of their fucking lives. And they kill themselves and we see it all the time. So my belief around the diagnosis is 100%. If you sat me with a psychologist or psychiatrist today and they asked me questions about my life, I guarantee you there would be no diagnosis of PTSD because I'm happiest man I've ever been in my life, despite mm. not seeing my girls. And that's really the major stress in my life these days because I've stopped making decisions that are self-destructive that create grief and drama. I cut toxic people out of my life like cancer. I don't engage with them. I only do the things I know will make me happy and I make no apologies for that. And that's how you cure PTSD. How do you um, ensure that, I suppose there's a, I, I think I'm going to know the answer to the question, but I, I'm interested to hear it anyway. In terms of you saying, um, I cut toxic people out of my life and I only do things that make me happy. How do you then balance that with, or do you even care if you do things that make you happy and therefore it has a negative effect on somebody else? Perfect. You've listened to everything we've talked about in the last hour and a half, right? I'm someone who does everything I can to help other people. That's my biggest drive mm. in life. So thank you for asking that because the best way I can describe that is this. I will do anything for anyone and help them if they're going to do the work to help themselves. What I will never engage with, and I've had a number of very you know, narcissistic people in my life in different aspects during my life. And when I look back, because I'm a very empathetic person, I'm a very caring person, and a whole lot of my self-worth and value is based around helping other people, that makes you a very susceptible target to narcissistic selfish manipulative people so i used to be way too soft and way too giving if anybody if somebody asked me for help i'd do it building fences at my friend's house someone would ring me and go hey mate i need you to move help me move house yep no dramas i drop everything to go and do that to the detriment of of the girl's mom to like she used to get really quite angry at me she goes why do you fucking always help people but you never ask other people for help i go oh that's just who i am and that's an insecurity thing where I wanted to do everything myself. I didn't feel worthy of asking other people for help, but I had a real satisfaction in helping other people. My dad's mm. the same. A lot of his family and my family is the same. So when I say I cut toxic people out of my life, it's not violent and it's not angry. If I am engaging with someone and I believe they are a really negative person, if they're someone who loves drama, if there's someone who just wants to whinge about how sad their life is or someone who is narcissistic and is selfish in why they want to be in a relationship with me or, or anyone else. And I say, look, I've done a heap of study around narcissism as well. I'm halfway through writing a book on how to deal with narcissism. Narcissism is like stupidity. Narcissists don't know they're narcissists and stupid people don't know they're stupid. We all think we're geniuses. 
So you never meet someone who goes, hey, my name's Sean. I'm a really nice guy, but I'm dumb as dog shit. Like no one says that, right? So, <laughs> you know, Nuss, we all think we're really smart. So narcissists are very similar. So therefore, I just, the minute I get a feel, a gut feel that someone's not good for me in my life, I just stop putting in effort. And 99% of the time, they don't either. And it's normally an indication that they weren't putting any effort into the relationship in the first place and it just drifts away. But whether it's my mum and dad, my sister I love to death, my niece and nephew I love to death, whoever it is, if I've been your friend for 30 years and you something happens and I go, yeah, I don't really think that's a great thing or whatever, then I will look at it these days and go, hmm, that's not great. Whereas before, I would go, oh, it's okay. That must be my fault or, you know, whatever it was. It was a lack of self-worth and value on my part. And I look back now and I had a, quite a number of those people that were really close to me in different aspects through my life. I've, I don't, I haven't engaged with any of them for 10 years. Um, so the toxic people piece for anyone listening to this, I think is extremely important. I, you know, I do keynotes and workshops in corporate and stuff all the time. Let's say like I do keen, uh, workshops at the Soldier Recovery Center for military yeah. 12 times a year at Onogra. So there's 50 soldiers in there who are ill and injured in whatever aspect, physical, mental, emotional. And I do three two-hour presentations to each group and there's four groups a year. I've been doing that for four years. I stand up in front of them always and go, so but it's very similar to what I'm talking about here. And I say to them, right, so how many of you have someone in your life, when your phone rings and you look at their name on the screen, you go, fuck, I don't want to answer that. And they all put their hand up. And I go, cool, leave your hand up if that's a family member. And 90% of the time it is. Like we've all got a whoever, mum, dad, brother, sister, uncle, like whoever, someone who we find really difficult. But we've been told that we should put up with that person, that you don't want to be mean, you don't want to do this, you don't want to do that. My mum's brother, my uncle, I used to play guitar with when I was a, a teenager in a band, in a country band. He's a really cool dude. Um, not a particularly spiritual guy, not a particularly... Um, loving guy in this expressive way him and i spent a lot of time together when i was a teenager playing music and whatever and i look back now and go he was a really really positive influence on me he's a very sarcastic dude i remember him saying to me once years ago he said if someone's got to be miserable let it be someone else and at the time i thought you asshole that is such a mean horrible thing to say now i used it recently on something and he said i haven't seen him for you know probably since before COVID. i don't see him very often not for any reason. And he sent me a message and he goes, um, stealing my material, are you? He said, I hope you I hope you <laughs> not footnote it to me, whatever the thing is. I hope you, you know. Give me the credit for it. Or whatever. <laughs> yeah, give me the credit for it. And I said, I absolutely do. I said, I always say my uncle says, but he goes bullshit. I said, no, no, I do. And what I realize now is that being a real, somebody who loves helping people and all those things, couple that with the lack of self-worth and value, Couple that with just wanting to be liked by people, which I think is a very normal freaking thing. We are so likely to put up with shit behavior just to have people in our lives. And when I got to the point of realizing if someone, if I'm going to have, if you and I are great friends, Fee, and then something happens where one of us is going to be unhappy in our friendship. So, so let's say, I'll make this up. Let's say you and I catch up and have coffee 
and we have a discussion about a particular thing and we get to a point where we just realise we're at diametrically opposed opinions and it's something that is really important to both of us and therefore it creates a bit of a riff or a bit of toxicity between you and I. The old me would have just gone, oh, no, it's all good. No, no, you're right. I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that. And I would just surrender because I didn't want to people not didn't want people to not like me. I was also argumentative. I used to argue with people all the time and stuff as well. So sort of a bit of a dichotomy thing. But I would put up with shit behavior from just about anyone mm. close to me. Now I'm like, and the best way I can describe this in one of my stupid analogies, it might help your people that are listening, is I go, um, Beanley is a place in Brisbane that's not so rough anymore. It used to be very, very rough. It's like Broadmeadows in Sydney or like Mount Druid. Oh, sorry, Mount Dru- Broadmeadows in Melbourne, Mount Druid in Sydney. I go, I, my life used to be like the Beanley Tavern. Anybody could get in, didn't matter what you did, so long as you, you know, didn't drop a number two on the dance floor, you could stay. And I would put up with anything. Now my life is like a high-end nightclub in Manhattan, whatever, that if your name's not on the door, you don't get in. And if you look sideways at someone or you have the wrong shoes on, it's easy to get kicked out because I only want to surround myself with really decent, loving, amazing human beings who want to make a difference to other people because that's what floats my boat, that they're my people, that's my tribe. So if you're someone who wants to tell me how much money you make and how much your watch costs and whatever, I couldn't give a fuck. We have nothing in common. If you're someone who goes, hey, let's have a deep com, I don't do small talk. I'm, I'm not interested in the weather. I don't care what your favorite color is. You know, I don't want to know what happened on fucking Neighbours last night. That's not me. If we can have a conversation about some real, like a big deep chat about humanity, emotions, like whatever, I mean, I love that. And these days I'm really happy because I've got, like many people around me, I'm extremely fortunate that more and more I meet people like you, Fee, like these two young police officers I caught up with today independently. They're both young men in their mid-20s. I have all of these people around me who are similarly motivated to be really decent people and be happy Mm. people. people. And as an old middle-aged white man at 52, I feel absolutely blessed, as much as I hate that word, um, I feel extremely blessed and very grateful to have amazing people in my life and be able to impact them. So I'm going to use every minute of my time and every bit of energy I have to help as many people as I can who want to do the work. I'm not going to spend any time to help psychopaths be better psychopaths. You you mentioned about in the book finding happiness, not chasing happiness, but being happy in the moment in the day. In terms of the CEOs and the high... Um, the coaching that you do, I don't know how you would describe it, but it's sort of yeah, high high performance coaching. Yeah. High performance coaching. How do you weed out the dickheads from that? They weed themselves out. Um, I don't advertise. I a lot of my clients. If I think back over the last couple of years, probably eighty percent of them come from word of mouth. There are certainly people come to me through my social media or podcast interviews or whatever, but if you're someone who's listening to this podcast and you probably wouldn't be, I understand the sort of person you are, if you're a narcissistic psychopath who just wants to stitch people up, you're probably not going to listen to your podcast. Yeah. But if you're someone who's listening to this podcast, you've got a pretty good idea who I am 
and I'm extremely loving, but I'm also very no bullshit. Mm. So I'm working with a guy, the longest client I've had. I've been working with him about 80 months. He's worth a you know, multiple 10 figures. Um, eight figures, I mean, sorry. What am I talking about? Multiple eight figures. He's very rich. He's <laughs> wealthy. very rich, very wealthy. Got flash cars, got, you know, multi-million dollar houses. Great dude. Has his own challenges like everyone else. The first day I caught up with him, we sat down and had a coffee. And um, he, he is a titan of industry, runs multiple companies, is on boards, like does all these multi-million, hundred-dollar million deals. Like he's a phenomenal professional. Him and I sat down and had a coffee at this cafe. It was during COVID. And when we sat down, he was sort of uh, pretty quickly, I could tell he was a guy that not many people tell what to do. So he's uh, he's a lady came over who was in her probably early 40s to take our order. It's a cafe he goes to all the time. So she knows him. He comes up, she comes over, he goes, I want, and he's got a really complicated coffee order, of course. And I told her my coffee order. And and I said, um, can I ask you a question to this lady? And we had been sitting down. We'd probably been talking about 10 minutes. I'd never met him before. I said, um, I said, is he, is he always an obstinate prick or is it just because I'm here? And this lady looked at me and smiled and goes, oh, no, he's always like that, but we still love him. <laughs> I said, oh, interesting. She leaves. He looks at me and he goes, what? I said, you're an arrogant C word. Mm. And he goes, I don't think I am. I said, you mistook that as a fucking question. I said, that was a statement, mate. I said, the way you just spoke to her is really arrogant. And he's like, what? what? And he was quite taken back, obviously. And I said, that's one of your biggest problems. I said, because you put up this arrogant front. And I said, 10 minutes of talking to you and the person who referred me to him, he was a a PT client of this person for a number of years. So this person said to me, he's actually a lovely guy. He's just really cocky, arrogant, blah, blah. So I had a bit of, bit of background. I said, mate, you're, you're obviously a really loving, caring, decent guy. I said, I can see that, but you act like an asshole. And that's why people don't love you. And he had tears in his eyes and he's like, what? So I'm in a fortunate position in my business now, Fee. I don't need to beg people to work with me. I'm, I've worked hard for well over 12 years now to build a reasonably good business. Um, dickheads just don't come to me. And I think they probably, if they've seen any of my content or whatever, how I am on this podcast is how I am in life. It's how I am when I do keynotes for corporates. It's, I am just the same person everywhere in my life. If you watch any of my content and you you probably aren't going to think that I would put up with too much bullshit, I would suggest. Mm. So those people just aren't going to come to me. You're very when when you spoke of brothers and books, you're you're actually very funny. I was in stitches um in that. So I would recommend anybody book you for any speaking speaking. Oh, thank you. Um thank you. The Strong Life Project separate to the you've got the Dark Companion, which is your book. You've got the Strong yep. Life Project. Is that incorp- uh, encompassing your uh coaching or what is the Strong yeah, Life Project? So it's all yeah. sort of it's all just me, right? So I don't, there's no real silos in the sense of, so the high performance coaching stuff I do with CEOs, business owners, whomever, athletes, Yeah, that that is a one-on-one thing under the Strong Life Project. I also do workshops, like two-hour workshops for 
you know, whether it's police, military is, a, is my passion sort of place in the sense of I want to give back to that community because I know how tough that is. But I do a lot of stuff with business owners. Like at the moment, I've got oh, a couple of guys who are multi-million like businesses. And when I say multi-million dollars, like, as in they might have 10 staff. I work with a guy who's got a big solid company. He's got 40 staff. Um, so it's more about the individual yeah. than it is about the business. I do keynotes for, you know, corporates who come to me like, you know, listed property companies or, you know, not that I've done a keynote for BHP, but if BHP came in and said, hey, we want you to do a resilience talk or a leadership talk or a culture work, I do all of those things. Because basically I call myself a human behavior and high performance coach. I just made that up. Because I go, I know how people work. I've been to the depths of the darkness of my own psyche. And then because of my obsessive ADD personality, I've spent so many years just every piece of information I could find to understand how human beings work. And therefore, there's nothing to do with people that I can't help people with. So I've helped people who've been through cancer. I've coached people who've been, you know, a number of people who've been through, you know, parental alienation with narcissistic ex-partners multiple people who've been, you know, uh, victims of domestic violence, sexual abuse, like people from all walks of life. Because I think, I don't really know why they think I'm as effective as I am because as I talk to people, it seems just very obvious stuff to me, but I guess that's because I know it well, maybe. I look at me and but just I think I'm think the same. Also, I think also you've had a very condensed mm. optic because of your policing. So it's obvious to you because you've lived it and had repetitive exposure to certain things that, that then would make it obvious to you. Yeah, 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 definitely. I still look at me and just think I'm a just a very normal simpleton and at some stage someone's going to knock on the door and go, ha, ha gotcha, this is all <laughs> made up. imposter sy- syndrome. Yeah, 100%. <laughs> and I'm also... I never it's interesting want... you're still fo- you're still fighting that. Sorry, you're still fighting that. Yeah, well, and, and that's interesting because that's what I was just going to say, right? I don't ever want to lose that because, really? like, I know I'm really good at what I do. Don't get me wrong. I think yeah. I'm very, very good at what I do. But I equally always want to have a little bit of that insecurity going, you're probably not as good as you think you are, mate, because I think insecurity and humility are next-door neighbours. If I get to a point where I'm like, you know what, Sean, you're fucking amazing and you're the best guy that, anyone could ever talk to, Big jam. then there's yeah. a risk of that arrogant selflessness, uh, selfishness, sorry. There's a risk of that, um, you know, there were, in that sort of mindset, there'd be a risk of, hey, Fiona, you know how fucking lucky you are that I'm actually taking time to talk to you on your podcast? And I just think you hear people like that in life and I'm like, you're a dick. I am so very grateful that you've taken the time to talk to me about my life more than I think I'm doing you a favor. You know, like it's a thing where I just go, I'm in a very, very normal human being with many flaws, but I think I'm just lucky that I've got a bit of a, whatever the personality or whatever the thing is in me that makes me a bit of a loose character that likes to do shit outside normal. And I like to push myself to just, see what's at the edge, whether it's, you know, with my pup that I got, the Malinois pup that I got, she's 12 weeks fur old. Missile. I took her to the vet. The what, sorry? Fur missile. The fur missile. So I took her yeah. to the vet today and her dad's a, an SAS dog. So she's full on. And if you don't know what a Belgian Malamar is for your listeners, the best way to describe it is it's like a German shepherd 
cross with an alligator on Red Bull is how it, <laughs> I've heard it described before. <laughs> but I've got cuts all over my hands and arms. It looks like I've got leprosy because she keeps biting me. And um, she's amazing. And I've been training her. And I was at the vet today and the vet's like, oh, my God, she's a beautiful dog. Um and I had her like sitting, downing, and she heals. She does all this stuff with with food. And I've had her four weeks. And, you know, for a week of that, I was pretty much couldn't get off the couch really. Um, and so, Rach, you know, when we were in Melbourne recently for Christmas, she would come home from her sister's, her brother's house or whatever, and I'd be hobbling around the backyard, hardly couldn't even stand up straight, like training the dog. And she's like, "Han, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, no, I'm fine. Like, I've just got a personality that if I – you couldn't give me a million dollars to do shit I hate. So in mm. the corporate world, I hated that job. And I could have got to a point, I'm like, and not being arrogant, guys who are good at that job earn seven or 800 grand a year. I could have done that, but I had no interest because it meant that I had to be dishonest, my opinion of it. So, but if you say to me, like, go on a shot show and go to Vegas to talk to cops and soldiers, I go, I will fucking kick down doors and do whatever I can to help people over there because I find that a challenge. If, you know, this sounds so stupid, but it's just how I think and I embrace this side of my personality. Now, if someone rang me today, so when Kabul in Afghanistan, when Kabul blew um, all blew yeah. up and the US military yeah. pulled out, the airport was out of control. I was watching, there's a guy called Tim Kennedy, who's an ex-special forces operator in the States, has a mm -hmm. charity called um, Save Our Allies. So they went to the Sultan of Brunei got a 737 and a um, C-17 jets from him. So one's a big military aircraft, one's a 737 obviously, and or whatever it was, 747. And they took 12,000 people out of Kabul. He went over there with other operators was for free. Was it Brunei? I thought it was one of the Saudi princes. Was it Brunei? Or was it Saudi princes? Actually, sorry, know. it might have I'm been the Saudi sure. prince. My apologies. I think yeah. you're right. No, no. Actually, Fee, I think you're right when you say that. I think you're right. It was the Saudi prince. My apologies. You are right. And when, and I was like, fuck, how could I get onto that? Like I go, if someone rang me and said, hey, mate, there's a bod there's body armor and an M4 here and a helmet, we can go to Kabul and get people out. I'd go, fuck you, I'd go do that tomorrow. Because to put yourself in a position like that, that's so dangerous and so at the limits of, you know, like it makes no sense as a 52-year-old burnout ex-cop to go and do that. But I go, I'd love to do that sort of shit. And I They're think still working that's what on that, by the way. Yeah, yeah, I know he's doing it in the Ukraine. I'm no, hoping. No, no, they're still doing Afghanistan crossed. as well. That's not stopped. Oh, is he? Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah, yeah right. So he's amazing. I love. Yeah, yeah, he's he is. And there's um, there's a there's one another podcast called the Sean Ryan Show. He's yeah, he's huge. <laughs> Yeah, well, they talk awesome. about the Pineapple Express, which is the route to get them out and how some of them did it. Um, so that will be oh, an man. episode that you'd love to listen to. Because I'm listening to one at the moment with the guy, Eddie, someone who's a Navy SEAL. It's like DJ Shipley, he's another Navy SEAL, and there's, they talk a yeah. lot about mental health stuff. Yeah, Sean Ryan's podcast epic. Um, and if I look at, look, Tim Kennedy is a start of a human being. I don't think anything like him. But I see a similarity in personality in the sense of I resonate a lot with those sort of guys, yeah. whether it's SF guys, police, you know, people who will do whatever's necessary to help people. And that's why I think I'm good at what I do professionally because I have that same attitude 
not just hold their hand and go, do you think maybe it could be that this thing or that thing? You know, I um, I had a woman I worked while well, I was actually helping her daughter out. She's a friend of mine I met through a keynote I did and um, a number of years, three or four years ago now, and I was talking to her at one stage about her daughter who was going through some challenge, teenage daughter. And I said, can I ask you a question that's really personal? And she said, yeah. Um, and we'd only been friends a few months. I said, um, have you got any sexual abuse in your past? And she did some pretty significant. And she sort of told me a little bit about it. She was very young. It was pretty horrific. She goes, why do you say that? I said, it's just a gut feel thing. And I said, does it still really affect you? Stupid question. She's like, absolutely. So I had this gut feel, like an intuitive gut feeling thing. I needed to talk to her about it and say what I'm what I'm about to tell you. And in the voice in my head, that's the calm, the normal, whatever, was like, shut the fuck up. Who do you think you are? Don't you dare say this to this woman. But I had this overwhelming gut feel just go, I've got to talk to her. And I said, look, I said, can I talk to you about this for a little, for a minute? I said, it might be pretty confronting. And she'd seen a couple, I'd done some workshops with her staff and stuff. So she'd seen how it worked. And she goes, absolutely. I said, okay. And I said, please understand. I don't, I've never been a victim of sexual abuse. I don't know, but there's just something that I feel like might be able to help you. And what I said to her, I said, so if those, that same, those people that did that, had broken your arm instead of it being a sexual abuse thing, do you think it would still affect you the same way? And she was like, well, no, of course not. I said, okay. I said, so this might sound really offensive and nasty, but please stick with me. I said, why then is it so so impactful for you because it was sexual abuse? So I said, I accept it is. I said, societally, we all say it is. I said, I'm not for a minute denying it should be. I said, but ask yourself the question, why? do you hold on to that or where do we as a society hold on to that differently? And I accept that it is horrible and it's, you know, put- the sexual offenders and that are putrid individuals. They, you know, I caught a lot of them in the police and many of them wanted to fight me when I caught them, put it that way. So she said to me, that's interesting. I said, because if they broke your arm, you might remember it, but it wouldn't have the same impact on you that on relationships, on the way you trust people, on whatever. She goes, no, you're right. And I said, please don't think I'm being offensive. Like I said, I'm really nervous and scared to say this to you, but it feels like I should. And she said, yeah, okay. And I, she, I said, just maybe think about it, sit with it. I'm not sure. She rang me back two days later in tears and goes, oh, my God. She goes, you fucking changed my whole perspective on that. She goes, you're right. All I've been doing is letting those people hold that power over me there's no because I said to her, you still got physical injuries and different. She goes, No, I don't. And I said, So I said, You're right. Like I said, unfortunately, though, because of such that event, which is obviously horrific and fucking extremely difficult, if not impossible to get over. I said, if you just look at it differently and go, Yeah, that was horrible, but it doesn't need to affect you now necessarily. And we've been friends for a number of years and she would talk to me the other day. She ran me the other day for Christmas or just before Christmas and goes, hey, I just wanted to say I've helped her daughters out a couple of times. And she goes, I just want to say thank you. I love you immensely. She goes, you have fucking changed my life. She goes, you are a brutal asshole at times. And she goes, you challenge me immensely with things. She said, but I couldn't be more grateful or something to have, I love you to have you in my life. Not never charged her a cent. She's just a lady that, I was, that I'm friends with. And I think my willingness to have those conversations 
which and just tell you it on this podcast challenges me. I go, holy shit, that sounds fucking out of control. But one of the things that I think as human beings, Fee, we're scared to have really deeply connected and vulnerable and difficult conversations about things like that with each other. And I think that's why we're in such a mess in our society at the moment. And I go, if we had, now look, I took a big risk in that because she could have ended up hating me out of it. But it's never occurred to me with people yet. And it's never occurred with anyone yet. Because I think if you are coming at things with people from a genuine place of love and connection and vulnerability and wanting to impact, people will forgive, you know, breaking some eggs to make an omelette. If I was an arrogant asshole who just wanted to prove I was smart, then that wouldn't have gone like that. And I think that's why I'm successful in it because the same personality that had me willing to risk getting hurt or killed or whatever, kicking doors in and doing dangerous things in the cops is the same personality now that I go, I just don't want to die. And like, I don't want to be on my deathbed and go back and go, fuck, you just never took a risk. You could have been so much more effective. You could have done things so much better. Now, are there people out there that don't like me? Fuck yeah, of course there would be. Um, but if I'm mediocre and vanilla, and if if everybody who knows me goes, nah, take him or leave him, then I'm just living in the middle in mediocrity where most people live. I would much rather people go, you know what, I love that guy, I think he's awesome, or I fucking hate him and he's an asshole, because at least then I know I'm having a significant impact on some. So does your desire to have an impact over override your hypersensitivity to others' opinions? Oh, 100%, yeah. Right. And I've also got a good splash of, um, of as, my da- as does my dad, of... Like, I love being a show pony. I love being a centre of attention. Like, you, you saw me present at that Brothers and Books thing. Like, I was in You're my element. You're great. I love it. You're amazing. Like, yeah. You know, thank you. Thank you, Faye. Like, I get really – I still get nervous. But I just live – I just – like, I didn't prepare a thing when I did that talk at Brothers and Books. That was off the cuff. But I just speak from the heart and I mm. just talk to people about – the stuff that I believe can make you happier or whatever the case is. Mm. I've got a pretty good sarcastic sense of humor from years of using it as a self-defense mechanism <laughs> when I was a younger man. So I can use that in a in a less offensive and hopefully funny way. And the thing that I find, whether it's keynotes or workshops or whatever, when I have a group of people is that I seem to have people tell me this. I don't see this, but I people tell me this, that I take them on a journey Mm. That can be really dark, like really challenging and difficult. Mm. And then, so the way I had it described by someone to me a while ago, they go, the best way I could describe it, they go, you took me on such a journey that was really getting deep and difficult and tough. And then you would bring me up out of the, like head above water where it was very lighthearted and funny. And then you took me back into the Mm. darkness and then brought me back out. So it wasn't overwhelming. It was amazing. Blah, blah, blah. Now, I don't know where that came from. I know my dad's a very charismatic guy, MCs at weddings and stuff like that. He was in the media a lot. Like, he's a funny, funny dude, but he's like a very funny guy. So I think part of it's probably learned from him. But ultimately, I think that imposter syndrome and insecurity is a great thing because it keeps me grounded. And I just look at myself every day and go, mate, you're a fuckwit. Don't get too full of yourself. And then equally on the other side, I get 
so many people, you know, messages on social media and a whole lot of different things where people just go on, you're amazing. Thank you. You've changed my life. Like people listen to my podcast mm. and go, I was going to kill myself and I've listened to your podcast and now I've lost 30 kilos and I repaired my marriage and I've, I'm happier than I've ever been and I've never, ever spoken to those people. So I just don't, honestly, feel I've got no fucking idea why people like it. And there is a fear in the back of my mind, absolutely, that I go, I might wake up one day and people don't like it anymore. But if that happens, I'll deal with that when that happens and I'll go and work with Tim Kennedy, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> well, the reason why I mentioned that it's still going on, you could always hit him up and see if there's um, any well, work Well, I'm hoping for to see him at sure. SHOT Show because I believe he's going to SHOT Show. If he Tim is, Kennedy yeah, listens I to your podcast. Him, I saw him... Um, I saw him do a post about going, so I'm sure you'll be able to go and read it. I saw the same one. I was like, woohoo, absolutely. Oh, I, was on, I was on Instagram, yeah, but he's, I mean, he's all over the social media, so he's good. Yeah. Um, and I'm sure he's not listening to this podcast. <laughs> well, who knows, Fee, maybe he is. We never know. You never Fingers know. Crossed. Thank you so much, Sean, for coming on. Everyone, please go out, The Dark Companion, or My Dark Companion, and uh, The Strong Life Project. Uh, look at the website. Um, I'll put everything in the show notes for people to have a look at. But, um, Sean, thank, thank you so you. much. Thanks, Fee. And any of your people, like any of you guys that are listening now, if you're struggling with stuff and you want a hand, shoot me a message on social media. It might take me a while to get back to you. I get shitloads of them now, but I answer them all. Um the number one thing that I want to leave you with for and your listeners is anything in your life can change if you're prepared to do the work. Nothing's permanent. If you feel like shit now and everything seems fucking terrible, one foot in front of the other, do the work, you'll get there. And it's not, it's, it's simple, but it's not easy. So I just want people to know, like if I can go from lying in bed with a Glock in my hand through uh, 20 years ago and want to kill myself, to a point now where I've never been happier and my life's fucking amazing and I still don't see my kids and whatever, then if I can deal with that stuff, then they can deal with whatever their thing is. Perfect. Thanks, Sean. Thanks, Pete. Thanks for taking a moment to listen, everyone. We hope this episode inspired you as much as it did us. If you know somebody who also needs a little inspiration, then please share this podcast with them. Also, don't forget to subscribe on your fave podcast app and rate and review us because that helps inspire us to keep making them. 